I had um, just the real pleasure right before we got started here to meet Roddy, uh, who's here with us tonight. Roddy was a campus minister who ministered in this space in the 80s and 90s. She's here visiting a family member of hers, I believe, right, who's got a concert next door. But we're so glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us for worship. Um, just to bring you up to speed and the rest of you too, uh, we've been looking uh, at the Apostles' Creed uh, this semester, sort of answering this question, what is it that all Christians believe? Is there sort of a set of teachings or beliefs that all Christians of all stripes have put their faith and trust in? Uh, as a student even asked me you know, last semester, what do I need to believe in order to be or to become a Christian? And I submit to you uh, the Apostles' Creed, a map and compass of sorts that Christians across time and space have used to sort of help orient themselves theologically and make sense of the scriptures. We're at the very end. The last two lines... I believe in the resurrection of the body uh, and the life everlasting. And to to help sort of make sense of these claims, uh, we're going to use Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, uh, as our text tonight. So if you would, uh, turn there with me or grab that sheet of paper with uh, that passage printed for you. Or you can cast your eyes up here. This is what we're going to look at tonight. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Please pray with me. Father, uh, you are a good, good Father. Thanks for gathering us together uh, again on a Wednesday night to hear from your word. Thank you for giving it to us, for sending your Son, and for pouring out your Spirit. And we pray that he would help us to hear and to see and to understand all that you want us to see and hear and understand tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, I want you to imagine two twins in a mother's womb. As far as they can tell, that's all that life is uh, and is like. Right there uh, in the womb. All they can see is what's right there in front of them. Tiny little hands, tiny little feet, an umbilical cord dark, it's hot, there's blood and guts and amniotic fluid all around. 
This is their world. This is the, the universe as they know it. But as these twins grow up, they begin to sense that there may be more than meets the eye. They begin to hear sounds, intimations, that there is something else, and indeed someone else, on the other side. And it's a strange thought. How could that be? And one of the twins asks the other, Hey, bro, do you think there's life beyond the womb? It's a funny thought, right? Twins conversing, considering if there's life beyond the womb. But is it really all that strange? Is it it really all that weird? Because here we are, and all we can see is our tiny little hands and tiny little feet. And as we look at the world, blood and guts sort of all around. It's dark, it's hot, it's crowded. Is this all that there is? Or is there more than meets the eye? The Bible says that the entire creation, really the whole cosmos, is groaning and is in the pains of childbirth. That the universe is still in the womb, uh, as it were. That there is a whole other kind of living waiting for us behind or beyond a door. That just like a child hearing muffled sounds from the outside world, that we too hear sounds, voices even. The voice of Jesus saying that there's more. I'm excited to see you, right, to welcome you in. Life beyond the womb, life beyond the tomb. Tonight we're considering what that life is going to be like. Specifically, focusing on heaven. What is it going to be like, and who gets in? Revelation 21 is going to answer these two questions for us. What is heaven like? Who's going to get in? And to the question, what is heaven like? Revelation 21 has three things to say. Right? Heaven is everything wrong with this world made right. Secondly, we're going to experience it much like we do this world. That is, as a spiritual, material place. And thirdly, we're going to experience it communally. So to summarize, heaven is good, it's physical, and it's communal. But first, heaven is good. It's good. It's everything wrong made right. For all of you Lord of the Rings fans, yes, Samwise, everything sad is going to come untrue. And here's how the Bible gets this point across. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Okay, this is the Bible's way of saying that all will be made well. To the Hebrew mind and imagination, the sea symbolizes disorder and chaos. It's not simply that the sea rocks and rolls It's not simply that it's unstable and unpredictable. If you've ever been on a boat in the midst of a storm, or if you've ever seen the sea transgress its bounds, maybe saw pictures of the tsunami in Indonesia, 
pictures of Hurricane Katrina, pictures of Hurricane Harvey. You know the destructive, chaotic power of the sea. It's scary. It's dangerous. It's deadly. But that's not all. The sea is also divisive. Cosmologically, the ancient Hebrews believed that the world was surrounded by sea, in some sense surrounded by chaos. There was a sea in the sky which explained why it would sometimes rain. And that sea in the sky separated God from men and women below. They also believed that there was a sea underneath the earth, which is why when you dig down deep, like digging a well, you would strike water. And then there was also a sea separating continents, and because it separated continents, it also separated peoples. Now, as you can now see, pardon the pun, right? The sea is a powerful symbol. So when the Bible and the biblical writers say that metaphorically speaking, the sea will be no more, he's not saying that there's no boating in heaven, not saying that there's no water skiing or even trout fishing. Thank God, right? But rather, no sea means no more division. Death and disorder are gone. Instability and insecurity, gone. Chaos, gone. Right? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away tear from every eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The new heavens and the new earth, right, the future, is a future where there is no more sea, to say no more tears. It's going to be a place where everything wrong will be made right. Behold, God says uh, in verse 5, I'm making all things new. Now note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. But rather, I'm making all things new. That's a difference, an important distinction. Okay, the word new here in verses 1 and 5 is the Greek word kainos. And the Greeks had two words for new, neos, or neos, and kainos. Neos means new in time, and kainos means new in nature. Right? Something neos new is brand new. It didn't exist before, but now it does. But something kainos new is something that is fresh, novel, transformed, metamorphosed. The new in Genesis 21.1 and 21.5, excuse me, Revelation 21.1 and Revelation 21.5, it's not neos, but kainos. And here's why this distinction matters. Okay, God is not rolling up this world like a piece of garbage and throwing it in the dumpster and starting all over from scratch. He's not making all new things. More or less, God is rolling up this world much like a caterpillar rolls up into a cocoon. Okay, in goes a caterpillar and out comes a butterfly. A butterfly is not a brand new creature. It's not neos. But it's most certainly kainos. It's most certainly new. Most certainly transformed. Metamorphosed. 
Scientists have shown that butterflies have trace memories of their times as caterpillars. Now, it is crazy that they can prove that, but they can. Right? A butterfly has memories of the time when it was a caterpillar. Strange and beautiful. It's the same creature, but it has been radically transformed. It's the same, but it's different. There's continuity and discontinuity at the same time. And this, friends, is very much akin to what the Bible is describing the future is going to be like. Everything that you see is going to be made new. Heaven is not us escaping this world. It's not starting over. It's not starting from scratch. Heaven is a transformation of what is before you. It's a kainos world. We will have kainos bodies. New. The same, but different. Better, even. This brings me to a point, sort of 1B, right? What is heaven like? It's good. It's all things new. But it is also a physical embodied reality. There are lots of boring sort of hallmark card images of heaven with fat little cherub angels sort of sitting in the clouds strumming harps. And this is sort of our popular notion of what heaven is and is like. And it is very unbiblical. It stems from this idea that our bodies are bad and our spirits are good. And that heaven is, and that heaven is a castle in a cloud where a bunch of spirits are going to play some instruments. Forever and ever. If you're like, that doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't sound very exciting to me either. God says that's kind of a nonsense image, right? The body is not bad. The body is good. He made it, after all. It's Megan and I sometimes joke. God doesn't make no junk, right? Matter matters to God. He made the physical material universe, and he calls it good. And since he made it good, and since he thinks it's good, he's not going to get rid of it. Now, to be sure, there are purely spiritual beings out there. That is, beings that exist outside of our physical material universe. God is one of them. The devil is another. So are angels and demons. But not us. Okay, God made us spiritual and physical beings. This is to say, you as a human being are not just a spirit, and you are not just uh, your body, but you are an embodied soul. What happens to you spiritually affects you physically, affects you bodily, and vice versa. Unforgiven sin and resentment and hatred will show up in your body as high blood pressure, ulcers, and the like. And if you eat nothing but donuts and Taco Bell, that's going to affect you spiritually. You're going to start feeling pretty lousy, pretty depressed. What am I doing with my life? Right? Human beings are more than the sum of their parts. Okay, we're not just bodies, and we're not just spirits, but we are embodied souls. 
Just say you can't divorce the two without doing serious harm, serious damage to the human person, to human nature. That means that when you die, you're not going to become an angel. You're not going to become just a spiritual being. Angels are good, right? Angels are angels, and human beings are human beings. And God is not saving you to be something that you aren't. He's saving you so that you can be something that you are and are meant to be. In sum, a flesh and blood image bearer of God is what he made you to be and is what he has saved you to be. In the words of a Dutch scholar named Hans Ruckmacher, Jesus did not come to make us Christian. Jesus came to make us fully human. That's a little provocative, but he's absolutely right. Jesus did not come to make us Christian so much as to make us fully human. And what he is saying is the same thing we've been saying this whole time that we've been here tonight. That God is not removing humanity from the planet, but he is redeeming it. He's not making all new things, but making all things new. All of creation, us included, is going to get an upgrade. Creation 1.0 is going to become creation 2.0. In creation 2.0, you and I will be the fullest, most mature versions of ourselves. The fullest, most mature versions of ourselves, body and soul. Body and soul. Our souls will be pleasing to God, right, without the stain of sin. And our bodies will be pleasing and glorified as well. In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn writes, Of this we can be certain. No matter what we look like, our bodies will please the Lord, ourselves, and others. We won't gaze into the mirror wishing for a different nose or different cheeks, ears, or teeth. The sinless beauty of the inner person will overflow into the beauty of the outer person. We'll feel neither insecurity nor arrogance. We won't attempt to hide or impress. We won't have to try to look beautiful. We will be beautiful. I just think that's great. That's really well said, Randy. Alcorn. (laughs) Uh, What those new bodies of ours are going to look like and be like is still mysterious. But if Jesus' resurrected body is any indication as to what our bodies will be like, and the Bible certainly suggests that this is the case, then we may or may not be subject to the same laws of physics as we are now. Okay, in his new resurrected body, Jesus was able to disappear and reappear at will. But that said, he was not a ghost. Okay, he was a corporal being, and he is even to this day. Okay, you could touch and you could feel the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus ate fish with his disciples... The fish entered into his stomach. It didn't just sort of flop down onto the floor. His new body even bore the marks and some of the scars of his old body. He was recognizable. He was the same but different. Like the caterpillar turned butterfly, there will be continuity and discontinuity with our bodies as well. 
Different heights and weights seem likely in heaven because we have different heights and weights. And different skin colors and racial identities are guaranteed in Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9. We're not all going to look the same. There's going to be a wealth of color and skin color in heaven. In sum, you will be you, albeit the butterfly version of you. Creation 2.0. You will be able to run and jump and skip and maybe even fly. There will be play and work and sport and feasting with food to taste and enjoy. It will be new, but not brand new. And it will be good. In fact, better than good. It will be heaven. This brings me to our third observation. Heaven, we've said, will be everything wrong with this world made right. It's going to be a physical embodied existence. And finally, we'll experience heaven corporally as well as corporately. Not just as persons, but as persons in community. Heaven is a city. It's a community. It's a civilization. Look again at your text. Revelation 21.2 reads, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city that is the New Jerusalem is described in further detail in chapter 21 and 22. It's radiantly beautiful, reminiscent of Eden. But heaven is not us going backwards, back to the garden. See, we're not going backwards, we're moving forwards. Heaven is depicted not as a garden, but as a garden city. There is a river that flows through the city, and beside uh, the river is the tree of life, a tree that we lost access to uh, in Genesis 3. But what was lost is found, and its fruit is for all and the new heavens uh, and the new earth. Again, friends, same but different. Inside this heavenly civilization, It's not just going to be you and Jesus. God will be there, right, in the flesh. You will feel his hand on your face as he wipes away tears from your eye. But there's going to be others there too. It's going to be filled with people from every tribe and language, every people and nation. And what's more, it's going to be filled with the best aspects and artifacts from the world's diverse cultures. As is written in Revelation 21, 25, and 6, the gates will never be shut by a day, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Quoting Randy Alcorn again, Like the current earthly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem will be a melting pot of ethnic diversity. Nothing of the diversity of the nations and peoples, their cultural products, languages, arts, sciences, literature, and technology, 
so far as these are good and excellent, will be lost upon life and the new creation. The various cultural contributions of different ethnic groups will not be in competition with each other, but will harmoniously enrich life and the holy city. Y'all, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Can you imagine right, such a place? Can you imagine it? Y'all, after the movie um, Black Panther came out, I listened to interviews where black men and women described their experience seeing Wakanda for the first time. If you don't know, Wakanda is this beautiful but fictitious place where King T'Challa reigns. Wakanda is a nation unspoiled by war. It's a place where human culture and technology are incredibly advanced. It's a place where human beings live in harmony with each other and with the natural world all around. And when these grown men and women saw Wakanda for the first time, they wept in that darkened movie theater. They really cried. And they wept because for the first time, maybe in a long time, they glimpsed heaven here on earth in part. They caught a vision of what it might be like. And that, vi- and that vision made their hearts ache. It made them homesick. It made them long for a brighter, better world. Do you ever catch glimpses of your future home here on earth? Like, there is, is there ever a time in your life where you sort of feel that far-off land, kind of sort of smell it in the air, kind of catch the scent of heaven? I can share with you a few of my own experiences with that. I told you one of them last week about Mary Johnson and Oshea Israel, this murderer who moves in next to this mom of who's he killed her son and now he lives next door and she calls him son and he calls her mom and they live happily together. That reminds me a lot of heaven. Sledding down Mount Philo with some of you this winter reminded me a lot of what it might be like. Feasting with good friends and family at a long table with good food on the, on the plate and good tunes in the background and a spontaneous dance party happening later that night typically reminds me of what heaven is going to be like. My mom and stepdad's cabin in Luray, Virginia often conjures up thoughts and feelings of heaven. In 2009, I was getting jostled in a blue minivan on some dirt road in Africa the seats had been ripped out so we just sat sort of like on the floor sort of like the chassis like right under our butts and this Ugandan man from the Acholi tribe he grabbed my hand like this and he looked at me in the eye and he said we are brothers because of the bond that we have in Jesus Jesus 
And I will tell you, the Son of Heaven was strong that day in that van. When I watch movies of, or the movie of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I see Aslan the Lion sort of dance, as lions dance with Susan and Lucy, I think a lot about heaven. When I watch vets care for animals um, tenderly and carefully, I think a lot about it. Sometimes when I see Coulter lie on Megan the way that he does, uh, I catch glimpses of it too. And here's why this is important. It's important that we get whiffs and glimpses of heaven because we need hope. We need to be reminded that this is not really our home. That there is life beyond the womb and beyond the tomb. We need to be reminded of our future. And what we believe about the future most definitely shapes the way that we live in the present. It does. What you think is your future is going to shape how you live today. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Right? It's with that in mind that we must imagine heaven. We must imagine it if we're ever going to image it. We must imagine it if we're ever going to image it in part here on earth. Right? Which is what God wants us to do. Until we get there, we are meant to bear witness to the reality of heaven. We are meant to show and to tell what it is and is going to be like, in part. To be signposts in a strange land, revealing to others what is to come. To give a foretaste of it so that other people can taste and see that God is good. We are meant to be ambassadors of heaven, or if you like, representatives of Wakanda. Here, on the outside world. If this is what heaven is and is like, how do we get in? You know, to get into Wakanda, you have to have a blue tattoo on your lip proving your citizenship. That was your ticket in. But what about us? What do we need or need to do uh, in order to enter into this blessed reality? Well, let's look at the text again, because it has our answers to these questions. Okay, starting at verse 6. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water, of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're asking this question, who gets in? It says in verse 7 that it's the conquerors who have this heritage. It's the conquerors who get in and get called sons, or if you like, daughters of God, who get treated like family. But who are these so-called conquerors? I'm guessing you'd expect it to be the opposites of those people listed in verse 8. I certainly did the first time that I read this. 
The conquerors are the opposites of verse 8. The cowards don't get into the brave must. The sexually immoral don't get into the sexually pure must, etc. But that's not what this says at all. Two pastors, Raymond Kanata and Joshua Raitano, helped me to see this very important and critical point. The conquerors of verse 7 are not the morally pure and outstanding. They are not the opposites of those listed in verse 8. The conquerors of verse 7 are those who are thirsty, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they don't have it, and they don't have it all together. They hunger and they thirst because they lack, and they are looking outside themselves for satisfaction. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is the thirsty who receive it. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the spiritually poor. Blessed are you if you don't have it all together. Blessed are those who moan and groan, right, who grieve their sin-sick condition. Blessed are the humble ones who find that their sins and the sins of others have laid them low and who feel that all they can do is crawl. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't have it, and they know they need it. Blessed are the spiritually poor. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. And maybe you're asking yourself, well, why is this blessed? How can this possibly be so? And the answer is simple. Those who recognize their spiritual sickness admit themselves to a hospital and get help. Those who are hungry and thirsty don't look inside themselves for satisfaction. They look outside themselves for something that will satiate it. And those who ask, receive. And those who seek, find. And those who knock, the door is opened. That's how you get into the world to come. Not by being awesome, but by admitting that you're not. Not by relying on yourself, but relying on another named Jesus. Not by seeking to slake your thirst within, but by looking outside of yourself for clear, cool drink. To quote Kanata and Reitana one more time, we get in on the life everlasting by recognizing we're not moral, we're not right, we're not pure. We get into the kingdom of heaven because we are thirsty. Thirsty for forgiveness, for mercy, for God's grace. We get in by recognizing that we are in need of a Savior. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we drink the spring of the water of life without payment. End quote. So friends, are you spiritually poor? Me too. Do you know your need of grace? God stands ready to save you. Are you thirsty? There's a heavenly drink available to you without money and without price. All you need is need. 
And all you need to do is receive. In Isaiah 55, God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Well, heaven is for real. It is really good. And it's for the thirsty. So receive and believe. And let's pray.